There's not many dental movies out there. My my dad had to watch all of them. It's like Novocaine with Steve Martin. He didn't like that one. <laughs> he also he also didn't like Little Shop of Horrors with Steve. Steve, Steve Martin, Martin has really set dentists back. <laughs> Hi and welcome to episode of Cinenation. My name is Brandon Sparks. And I'm Thomas Horton. And here on Cinenation, we discuss film genres and the tropes and stories within them. And this is the final episode of our month-long series on the neo-noir genre. And as usual, our final episode of the month will focus on a director that has worked extensively within the genre we were talking about. And the director we are discussing today is a director by the name of John Dahl, a somewhat lesser-known director that gained some success in the 1990s with a slew of neo-noir films or noir-inspired films. Um, Before we dive into John Dahl and his filmography, Thomas, can you give us a little recap on what we've talked about this month regarding neo-noir? Yeah, so we've talked about uh, a lot of different neo-noir films that all involve kind of different ways of, of updating the noir genre, but essentially... What that what it boils down to is taking some aspects of that noir genre and, and updating it in a certain way to a to a more modern context. Whether that is taking a character for, straight out of a noir film and putting him in nineteen seventies mm-hmm. um, Los Angeles, like we we saw with the uh, the Long Goodbye, or whether it is taking all of the sexual subtext from a noir film and bringing it to the foreground, like we did with Body Heat. Or whether it's even just taking the dialogue straight from a a noir film and and dropping it into a modern high school, which is what you and Ben covered last week with Brick. Um, It's really about taking all of these tropes that we're so familiar with with the noir genre and and updating it in a way that makes it more modern, but also pays tribute to those noir films from before. Yeah. And he said it brings this new modern or new perspective that hasn't really been shown in the genre and usually we'll cover things we've talked about it it will it'll deal with some of the same visual style of the 1940s 1950s noir movies but it'll also try to update it in a whole new context or a new visual style that didn't brick with ryan johnson's brick um or even uh altman's long goodbye where they say hey we'll just go the opposite way with this visual style um and then you have the tropes like femme fatale and playing with that, which was kind of talk we talked about in Body Heat, and we're going to definitely talk about today in this episode. And other things like the bag of money, which is very prominent in a lot of the movies movies we talk about today, of just what you can do with the bag of money storyline of oh we have this bag of money everybody wants it what do you do? But yeah, so today we're talking about John Dahl, and I'll just ask you first, Thomas, had you heard of this director before we did this episode? Uh, not really. I had seen I've seen Joyride several times on cable. At some yeah. point, I feel like it was a kind of a TNT staple for a while yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Um, I had never seen Rounders, but I was very familiar with the kind of cult around Rounders built around Rounders, and it was kind of a uh um uh I don't know what the what the word would be, but a very divisive film. Um, I, I know if people who love it and people who who hate it. But um, that would not have been able to tell you, wouldn't have been able to tell you the name of the guy behind it or and definitely would not have been able to tell you it was the same director. Like, never would have crossed my mind. Um, And otherwise, never even heard of any of these other movies we watch. (laughs) Yeah, it's a same thing to me. I I had heard Well, I first me ever saw by John Dahl was Rounders. And I saw it in high school because I was a big Edward Norton fan and also uh when I, or when I was a teenager, even younger than when I was in high school, but loved watching World Series of Poker on 
ESPN. It was right when the big boom was happening where like Texas Hold'em became kind of the mainstream. Um, and I like, remember like the, the poker player, Chris Moneymaker winning at the world series of poker. And he was like famous for being this amateur poker player who came in, just like won the whole thing. And so rounders like was that for me. Cause when I was that young, it's like, I would gravitate towards like, Oh, when I'd play poker with my friends, I'd quote lines from rounders and no one know I was talking about. And I was like, Hey, go watch rounders. Um, same way with color of money with pool. Uh, when I randomly play at the bar, but yeah, so I became more aware of John Dahl as a director when I was working at Cinephile Video in Los Angeles, a video store that still exists. Uh, go support them during this time. Uh, but yeah, and so our, and our friend group too has been watching Edgar Wright's Thousand Favorite Films, and there are a couple of John Dahl films on there. And I was so I watched I think The Last Seduction, and I was like, oh, this is different. And I began kind of watching more of this, his a couple, a couple of his films, and I kept thinking like, why, why wasn't this guy talked about as much? Because I don't, I won't say his all of his movies are great, but they're at least interesting, and I feel are somewhat fresh to me. Um, and I began noticing how many of his films, specifically his more successful ones, dealt with noir archetypes and noir storylines and tropes, and they all had kind of noir inspired visuals and i always say on a lot of these director episodes we talk about is that uh these are the people i would put on a director's wall because i know cinephile video has a director's wall and john Dahl was one i all we always kind of talked about and like thought about putting on there because his his we liked a lot of his films and what's so interesting about him is that he was coming up at a time and we'll discuss this today where a lot of directors like him were becoming more successful like the Steven Soderbergh's or the Tarantino uh, or the Tarantino's of the world. And his films aren't as flashy as they, as theirs. And they aren't as art house as other people like his films. And maybe you can agree with this. I don't know. His films feel like if you take a left turn at one point, they're winding up in like David Lynch or Quentin Tarantino territory. Like Red Rock West is one where like it could take a left turn and you're into something like Blue Velvet or whatever, uh, because it has a very Lynchian cast mm. in the movie. These all feel like movies that I would have seen on HBO in like yeah. '98. Uh, <laughs> you know, and I was just always kind of looking, especially and we'll talk about them. They were all like very well received critically. And I was just always waiting on something to pop and make yep. me go like, oh, this is a hidden gem. Uh-huh. And I don't know that anything ever really hit me like that. Like they were all solid and I would sit and watch any of these on, on you know, WGN on a Saturday afternoon. But um, yeah, I don't know that, that any, any of them really popped to me, which was surprising too, especially like with rounders. I, I felt like all of them were missing a kind of like salaciousness that, that I, I kind of thought they were all going to have. Like, like Rounders, I knew was so divisive uh-huh. and has this, like, cult built up around it that I kind of thought it was going to be a little more, uh, I don't know what the, a little bit more controversial than it was, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's not. It's a, it's a very mm. straightforward movie. Yeah. Um, I think it's good, but I think it's a very straightforward movie. Yeah, this one's going to be interesting because it's a guy I... I think made interesting films and I think made good films. I don't, I don't know if I would say they're all great or masterpieces, but I think there's something there 
that's worth discussing. Uh, we'll get into that film by film. Before we do that, let me give you a little bit of John Dahl's backstory. Um, so the majority of my research for this section came from Paul Monaco's book called John Dahl and Neo-Noir, Examining Autourism and Genre. Works very well for this ep- the show we do. Um, so John Dahl mm-hmm. was born in Billings, Montana, and he was the second of four children. One of his siblings, Rick, D- Rick Dahl, would later co-write John's film Red Rock West later in his life. Um, John's father also worked in the insurance business um, when he was growing up. After graduating high school, he became a student at the School of Art at the University of Montana in Missoula, Montana. Um, It was there that Dahl developed a passion for commercial art and graphic design, and he began to take note of noir within the art that he was looking at. And he loved the art of old Pulp Fiction paperback novels while also becoming a fan of Edward Hopper, the American realist painter. One of his most famous paintings is Nighthawks, which is one of my favorite paintings as well. Um, And he loved Hopper's paintings, um, but he also loved the work he did for magazines covers covers at that point or early in his life. Dahl decided to transfer to Montana State University to study film production. And while at MSU, Dahl met several like-minded students who wanted to make films. There he met David Warfield, who would become a close collaborator and friend for years. And he also met Beth Friedberg, who would later become his life later in or he would later become his wife later in life. Um, during this time at MSU, the trio and their friends created a student production group called Taiki Film Company. Their senior project was a schlock horror film called The Death Mutants that John Dahl directed. Um, during his time at Montana State, he decided to take an acting class to help his directing skills. Can you guess what famous actor was his teacher? The actor who taught him, he has directed in one of his films. And actually multiple films. Multiple films. Um, you only watched one of them, though. Oh, okay. Is it Dennis Hopper? It's not Dennis Hopper. Uh, it is Bill Pullman. Bill Pullman oh. was, jo- was John Dahl's acting teacher, acting professor in college. Um, after graduating from Montana State University, Dahl began working in some productions in Washington, D.C., before moving to Los Angeles to attend the American Film Institute. His classmates, David Warfield and Beth Friedberg from uh, Montana State University, joined him and also attended AFI. While at AFI, Dahl became a bigger fan of noir films, specifically after seeing Billy Wilder's Double Indemnity and Sunset Boulevard. He was so affected by the movie, he said, because he was a kid from Montana and the film was showcasing a town that he now lived in. Some of the locations from Double Indemnity were actually around his neighborhood in Los Feliz. Uh, and he also connected to Fred McMurray's character because he was an insurance man and Dahl's father worked in insurance. Mm-hmm. Dahl and Warfield continue writing movies together while at AFI. Warfield began producing music videos and Dahl began working as a storyboard artist. Dahl worked on several Jonathan Demi movies during this time, including Something Wild and Married to the Mob. He would serve as a visual consultant on Married to the Mob. You're welcome. As Don and Warfield were doing these jobs, a few AFI producer friends hired them to write a low-budget film called P.I., Private Investigators. Those producers would start a company called Propaganda Films, and Propaganda Films would later serve as an influential music video company where directors like David Fincher and Michael Bay, Michelle Gondry, Spike Jones, Antoine Fuqua, and many others worked for. Propaganda also produced some of David Lynch's work, including, I think, Wild at Heart and also the original run 
of Twin Peaks. Hmm. And I think we talked about propaganda films a little bit a few years back when I interviewed Larry Shapiro, mm-hmm. our, I guess, mutual friend that we we met in cl- at class at USC, because uh, he worked there. So if you go back, I think, for 2017, uh, he talks about his time there working for, I think, David Fincher and people like that. So Propaganda Films then hired John Dahl to direct his debut feature in 1999, which was written by John Dahl and David Warfield, and that film would become Kill Me Again. Now, Thomas, you just finished Kill Me Again right before this uh, episode. Yeah, I just finished Kill Me Again. Yeah. What is Kill Me Again about? Uh, Kill Me Again is about a couple um, played by Michael Madsen and... Um... Joanne, I think jo- Joanne Wally Kilmer is what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. she was Val Kilmer's yeah. wife at the time. Um, yeah. Also, the the uh, romantic lead in uh, the man who knew too little with Bill Murray. <laughs> Great. Another mention. Another mention on this podcast for man yeah. who knew too little. <laughs> always, I'll, always drop that movie. Um, but they they kill and rob uh, someone from the mob in in Las Vegas or near Las Vegas and. Uh, she kind of double crosses Michael Madsen, takes the money, and runs off to Reno, where she hires a private investigator played by Val Kilmer to stage her murder so that she can get away with the money. And then there's a, some double crossings and some triple crossings and some quadruple crossings. And it, uh, you know, it, of course, it ends with a big climax of Michael Madsen finding the two of them and and trying to uh, to get the money back. Yeah, and and you never really know throughout the film where her loyalties lie yeah she you don't really know is she a femme fatale is she like the loyal woman i guess if we're talking about like 1940s noir uh you're not really sure what she's like even though kilmer's the main character and we're following him uh she is very much kind of on the fence the entire time i the big thing i want to say about that movie because it comes out in 89 michael madsen playing a little bit like mr blonde from reservoir dogs and parts of that movie <laughs> And I just kept wondering, I was like, Tarantino must have saw this film. Like, like there's just like, because he has a whole scene where he like ties a dude up to a chair and is torturing him. You're like, oh, this is Reservoir Dogs, like three years before. And he's just playing full on crazy. So it feels like a dry run for Mr. Blonde is what it is. Mm -hmm. Sorry, we're closed. Yeah, well, the door was open. My fault. Sorry, but uh, we're closed. Are you Jack? Yeah, but uh, like I said. <laughs> Jack Andrews. What'd you do with Faye Forrester? Never heard of her. You're a fucking liar. The cops got it wrong. I never heard of her. I never heard of her. Well, I'm gonna kill you anyway. (laughs) All right, hold it. I said hold it! (laughs) Your gun ain't loaded, Jack. I don't know how I feel about Kilmer in the movie, though. Yeah. Kilmer kind of plays... Yeah, it's a very, like... It's not a flashy role, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's it's definitely... You know, he he feels a little too polished for it. It's it's supposed to be this, like, down-on-his-luck uh, investigator. 
in Reno of all places and yeah. kind of grimy and and he's he's Val Kilmer like um and you know th- he's 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 great in in a lot of stuff but and and he I feel like he's he's played that role or a very similar role to that better later on but this this was like uh-huh. right in the middle of his like hot Val Kilmer yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah and it feels like he's just like I'm gonna play this like hot Val Kilmer and, and it didn't <laughs> the role didn't really need hot Val Kilmer no but it's kind of fun I texted you it, it, I was like did Val Kilmer cast this movie himself because uh he put, got his wife in the lead and then to play his like best buddy slash um private investigator partner they they brought in John Grease who is actually his like real life best buddy yeah so. <laughs> who's been who's in real genius with them as well mm-hmm. um yeah it's it's if well because i know why when i when i read in the book was that like they were trying to get joanne wally and she was based in london they're like we don't know how to get in touch there because they are like low rent people and they were kind of like it's an indie film we can't get in touch there and they cast val kilmer and he goes well who do you have who do you have you want for the female lead and they hand the list he goes you do know i just married joanne wally right and they're like <laughs> we did not <laughs> He was like, and hey, you've got John Grease down on the list. He's my best friend. <laughs> He's my best friend. Oh, yeah, we'll just cast For those him. of you who are listening, maybe in the car and don't have time to IMDb who John Grease is, you might you might know him as, as Uncle Rico from the Napoleon Dynamite film. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the reference. That you could throw a football goal. over those mountains. He's great. So, yeah, I, I never seen this one before this watch. It was one that kind of I'd meant to watch because it was uh, Dahl's directorial debut. It's... Like I said, it's an interesting film. It's I think this one plays this one's the one that's like I guess closest to the noir tropes where he doesn't really like subvert them in any way as much. Yeah, he kinda no. like he definitely leans into them. Um, but it's the most where it's the more straightforward noir film out of I think all the whole bunch. Yeah, yeah. You know you know what I, I think it's got in common as far as storytelling with uh one of the other films we did this this month? What does it have in common? A, uh, a a a mafia subplot that is not needed whatsoever. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, it's just kind of yeah. there. It's just like, oh, we need we're in Vegas. We need to get the mafia involved. Yeah, it's like, oh, you're in Vegas. Then the mafia is like shooting them up in the in the hotel room. Yeah, that's fair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it would be better just to like the the more interesting part is like the people the people who are after the bag of money are your your main characters in the film. Mm-hmm. And not these side people that are just trying to get the money back. I mean, it's there. To yeah, add and, and he's to like, plot. like, like his character is wanted by the the Reno mafia, and then they get to Vegas, and it's like a different mafia <laughs> wants wants. <laughs> That's her. fair. Yeah, I forgot about that. They become partners. The mafia becomes partners in a way to to get them both or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, that's a fair point. Yeah, it's 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 a very, and I wonder. I mean, it's it was probably very different for the time because I read that at this point in time. They said neo noir wasn't really a term that was being used, so it's almost like that doesn't really become a thing till after this movie. It's like mm. a little like you have you have body because I think they said like body heat was kind of the only one they really thought of as like a of a movie that was trying to like really lean into those like noir archetypes and stuff. So they were mm. kind of looking at that a lot of time from Kill Me Again and Last Seduction. Though I think that was the movie they were looking for. Well, I think though it's interesting that I want to bring up here with John Dahl's movies, specifically these first three. They're very like blue collar noir films, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like they're not being they're not taking place in LA, they're not taking place in New York. 
they're taking place in these like little bit smaller locales of other places we don't fully see. Mm-hmm. Um, like the, I, may not kill me as much, but the thing, they're kind of these like Western noir or small town noir is what they kind of play into. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is interesting and different specifically yeah. for the era. And I think he has a good sense of place. I think in both and all three of kill me again, red rock West and last Duction, even rounders, I think he has a good sense of the location of the story, but I'll give you a little backstory. Cause I want to kind of like establish this thread early on regarding a lot of the releases of John, of John Dahl's films and why I think they're probably, are not as well known and probably why they kind of are like the cable classics or whatever you would say. Um, but kill me again was released in 1989 and the distributor was MGM slash United artists. Uh, and they believed that this film would not play well in major cities. So it opened on about 200 screens located primarily in the South because they thought it would play better there because it was a crime story with violence in it. <laughs> um, it was fifties. There's no one I can turn to. And you've tried talking to the police. I can't prove anything. They can't arrest a guy unless he murders me. And what do you want me to do? I want you to kill me. I mean, I want to make it look like I've been killed. That's a bit extreme, isn't it? Look, I made a, I made a real mess out of things. I want Faye Forrest to die so I can take on a new identity. Is that too much to ask? It's not that easy. What you want me to do is illegal. It's a kind of fraud. This man is going to kill me. You think I care about fraud? I'm just saying that it's not without a lot of risk. I'll pay you $10,000. Half now, the other half after I'm dead. So, yeah, what are your final thoughts on Kill Me Again? Uh, Yeah, it was, it was fun. It was... You know, a, a fun cast for sure. Uh, Michael Madsen's always interesting, I think. Um, it was a little too twisty for the sake of being twisty, I thought. Yeah, especially like, to the later point on. Where, yeah. yeah, towards the end, I got lost and I was like, I knew I was keeping, I knew I was keeping good track of the plot. So when I was lost, I was like, this, I shouldn't be lost right now. Um, yeah, well, well I, I definitely think it's it's the roughest around the edges, and I think he he manages to kind of keep polishing this this style of film as we go on. I mean, you you could argue he kind of does the same story for like if the first three movies in a way. Yeah, uh, yeah, because they all. Well, three... I, I told you, I told you, I think they could have called the last seduction "Kill Me Again" again. <laughs> um, but it's 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 an interest. The last seduction is is almost like a like a neo noir twist on Kill Me Again. If if Kill Me yeah. Again is Kill Me Again is just a visual update. I feel like of a yes very noir esque storyline. I agree. Uh, whereas Last Seduction does kind of put more of a storytelling twist on that same basic type of story. Yeah, and I think Last Seduction. We'll get into that in a little bit, but is probably his most subversive movie mm-hmm. uh, uh of of his career or at least of these specific three mo- first three movies but we'll move on to red rock west and maybe you disagree but it's probably my favorite one that i rewatched during this no i i, I feel the same way I, it, I was and last seduction had a little bit of this too but i just i like i said before i was looking i was expecting knowing that this guy was this kind of like 
indie neo-noir like kind of almost not not really like midnight movie but like kind of on the fringes i was expecting a little bit more like outrageousness from from all of these and at least you know when you when you bring in nicholas cage and dennis hopper it's kind of like it's gonna be outrageous whether you want like i don't know if doll wanted it to be as outrageous as it was but there's like there's three specific times in red rock west where where you know nick cage is like delivering some some dialogue and then he just starts yelling you yeah, like- know I, like, <laughs> I was like yes that's what i want yeah it's a very it's a more like subdued performance by cage like he's a it's a very much it's more subtle um compared and, and that's those, those kind of random bursts of nick cage energy mm-hmm like they work because they're kind of, it, I don't know. It's like it's Cage is very controlled throughout the movie in his performance, so it's more impactful when he does those yelling <laughs> moments. You're like, oh, Nick Cage is yelling again. Okay, um, but plot summary for Red Rock West: Nick Cage plays Michael, a Vietnam War veteran, which I have questions about the age of of him if he's a Vietnam War veteran. Um, Vietnam War veteran. Dallas- no, he's he's not a war vet. I thought he's he... not a Viet. He's not a Vietnam vet. He was okay. like Gulf. Um, Gul- like okay, Gulf. Gulf War. Okay, gotcha. Gulf War. Okay, he was in like Lebanon, it's... I think. Okay, Dennis Hopper, I think, was the Vietnam yeah. War veteran. Okay, uh, so Michael's a, a war veteran uh, who's down on his luck and is a drifter that lives in his car. He travels from town to town looking for work. After another failed interview, Michael ends up in Red Rock, Red Rock, Wyoming. Um, he arrives at a bar, and the bar owner asks him if he is here for the job. And for the first time in a long time, Michael, who has kind of been shown us as like a good man, lies and says he is, thinking it's a simple labor job at the bar. But Michael soon finds out the job is not washing dishes, but killing the bar owner's wife, played by Lara Flynn Boyle. Um, Michael is mistaken for a professional hitman out of Texas, and things get messy when the hitman, played by Dennis Hopper, finally shows up to town. I think it's just, I guess this is the one where like, if you take a left turn, you're in like David Lynch world mm-hmm. because of the cast that you have. And because of the setting, like you could, you could see this turning into wild at heart or blue Valent or blue velvet or something like that. Like, yeah, nobody really in this movie, nobody really gets into, nobody ever really pauses to go like, it's really weird that this tiny little town, like the, the sheriff is crooked and is covering up his past and is, his wife's like having all these affairs and and they're both trying to kill each other like it, it, it is yeah it's close to that kind of david lynch like seedy underbelly of the american small town yeah uh but it it, it doesn't quite it never pauses long enough to go this is kind of weird you know yeah, it, it's, plays, it's, it's, it plays it plays it straight like, it plays it yeah straight it's like moving time. moving moving and they they never kind of pause to take a moment and go like this is this is twisted yeah, but I yeah I think it's I think it's because of the cast that really elevates this movie. I, I feel like this one's the one that's like it's just twisty enough, if that makes sense in the plot, mm-hmm. um, for it to really work. And because the cast is so talented, he really doesn't go outside of these main few characters. It's pretty like yeah. these are the people we're focusing on, and that's about it. Um, I think he got better at his visual style in this movie. I like the way he uses like the Western cause it's kind of, cause they kind of uh, defined it as a cowboy noir for some reason, mm-hmm. because it's like, it's a, it's a Western hero coming into the town. Um, who's a drifter. Um, and they, and he does a good job of kind of, and it might be in terms of how he does it, might be a little kind of, uh, I don't know, predictable it is a little predictable in some cases, 
but like the way he kind of shows that Michael is a kind of honest man, that's why a lot of these movies, at least this and Last Seduction, are kind of like your and even Rounders to an extent of like these honest people who, because of kind of one moment of bad judgment, they get tied up into these like twisted plots, basically. But yeah, what I mean, I guess what were some more of your thoughts about this movie after watching it? Yeah, it was, it was a fun cast. I'm I'm always gonna enjoy watching Nick Cage and literally anything, which is what I think he's he's realized to, towards this this part of his career. Is he yeah, can make kind of anything, and, and it's gonna be interesting. I'm I'm so excited for this like Five Nights at Freddy's movie yeah. that he's doing right now. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I will say that we're as we're getting past Kill Me Again and Red Rock West, my biggest problems with both of these movies. Uh-huh. Where the 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 composer he used for for both these movies is the same guy and and I'm I'm sorry to this man I looked him up he has since passed away I don't want to speak ill of the dead but he is not good um, okay it's just playing atmosphere like the and I don't know what the what the post process was but it, yeah, there's yeah. no beats like the score never plays a beat there's multiple times in both movies where like someone pulls a gun on someone and I was just waiting on the score to like hit it. And it just keeps playing the same, same atmosphere. Same. Okay, like, that's interesting. Like, I was just like, come on, hammer that gun home. And they just like missed it. <laughs> hammer that gun. I do like the, the soundtrack, though, of Red Rock West. Some Dwight Yoakam. Well, yeah, Dwight Yoakam the, it ends the movie. Uh, who else mm-hmm. do they have on the soundtrack? It was like, the, it might, it might be kind of the Dwight Yoakam cameo in there, too. He, and he's actually really good. And the one scene he has, it's like one scene he has as a I truck driver. Yoakam. Yeah, I think he's I'm great. Always, like, I don't know. I don't know that I would sit and watch like an entire movie with Dwight Yoakam as the main character, but I'm always happy to see him pop up yeah. in like a little role in anything. So this was his acting debut was in this movie. Well, okay. Does that tickle? Because it won't if I pull the trigger. What the hell are you doing on my truck? Sorry, boss. I didn't mean to scare you. Hey! Did I look scared to you? What the hell are you doing on my truck? Well, I was just trying to ditch my old lady. You were what? Yeah, she caught me in the barn. I wasn't supposed to be there. She started sprouting horns and shit. Bullshit. Bullshit. Look at that uncontrolled response to bullshit. I hate when that happens. Yeah, I don't like it either, but I just had to get the hell out of there. So you come out and climbed up on my truck? Yeah. That's kind of stupid, isn't it? Yeah, it is, but you've never met my wife. (laughs) Spooky. Yeah? (laughs) Yeah? You're lying to me. Get off my truck. Come on, get off the truck. So this was the one that I think people started to really pay attention to John Dahl on in terms of like critically. And I wonder if it's because of the the cast. It was the thing is this was kind of so I'll, I'll give you the backstory and you can comment on it of like kind of what happened with this release as well. Um, so you would think after a botched release of Kill Me Again. Uh, that they would this is wouldn't happen again with such a talented cast, but you'd be wrong. Um, after the film was shown at Toronto International Film Festival, it received critical praise uh, with the positive audience reception. But Columbia TriStar, which bought the distribution rights to the film in the U.S., wasn't sure what to do with this cowboy noir, specifically because the test screenings weren't that great, but they weren't terrible. Propaganda Films, which again produced Doll's first these first two features, wanted to submit the film to Sundance, but Columbia said the film wasn't a Sundance movie. Um, the foreign rights were sold to another company, so Red Rock West has, had been released 
in multiple countries before being released in the U.S. I think it was kind of it got a good reception in Paris and like in France. The French kind of loved it. Um, so Columbia decided to cut their losses, uh, release the film on HBO at the end of 1993, where it was shown seven times in the coming months. Um, right before its home video release, Bill Banning, a theater owner in San Francisco, had seen the film at Toronto and was surprised the film had yet to get a theater release. So he decided there were, he, he believed there was an audience for it. So he opened it at a single, at his single screen theater, the Roxy theater in San Francisco. It ran there for weeks, breaking several of the theater's attendance records and Banning then decided to release the film theatrically through his own company in Los Angeles and New York city. Um, when the film began being released theatrically, c- critic Roger Ebert began uh, championing the film after seeing it in Toronto. Um, I think after its film release, it began. Peter Travers named it as the seventh best film of the year. Really? And Gene, Sis- Gene Siskel named it the ninth best movie of the year. Wow. So you would. So twice in a row, he kind of had bad releases, and it makes me wonder. Like, would he been like? Do you think he would have been a bigger name director, and had better opportunities with other films if they would have had bigger releases? Yeah, I mean, you 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 know, in, in this day and age, you hate to ask this question, but what would have happened if um if the Weinstein's had gotten their hands on him in like the early nineties? Well, that's gonna come into play a little bit later, by the way. Yeah, yeah, well, I, I know, I I I saw the I saw that uh, logo pop up on Rounders, but yes. um, yeah, you wonder because you have like Soderbergh popping around like at this point too. Soderbergh releases Sex Lies and Videotape the same year as Kill Me Again. Um, you have Tarantino, ninety two doing uh, Reservoir Dogs, ninety three he writes True Romance and Natural Born Killers, I think, and then Pulp Fiction ninety four. So and you have Kevin Smith doing Clerks and Rodriguez and El Mariachi. You would think, with that kind of rising or, or like um, I guess uh um, renaissance of indie film, you would think like, hey, what happens if he gets attached or he gets a good release of one of his movies? Yeah, and honestly, maybe that is why because he's like part of that class. Yeah, maybe that's why I was expecting these to be a little bit more splashy. Mm-hmm. and maybe that's why they didn't take off especially maybe, yeah. rodriguez like thinking about rodriguez coming up at, at you know a similar time with like no budget crime movies but uh and, and tarantino as well but yeah it doesn't it these these aren't trying to be those these are content with being a little quieter and a little less uh flashy or you know yeah over the top for sure Red Rock West specifically, you would think it could be a movie that does a little bit of a good box office. Like at this point with Cage being Nick Cage and Dennis Hopper, um, it's coming off of them having a, a pretty decent run in the 80s and then the 90s, with these kind of offbeat, odd films. And Dennis Hopper, I think, is the only one that really like that really plays this character as like an odd character. Like... Like, mm-hmm. I love, like, the way he talks to J.T. Walsh in the latter half of the film. Just like, hey, buddy, what's going on? I'm like, well, you're threatening to kill everyone, but you're still playing this, like, so super <laughs> nice as as Lyle from Texas. But, yeah, I think the chemistry in this I think the cast has great chemistry. And I think what makes John Dahl so unique to me is because he's not that flashy. I think he has a really good sense of um, camera movement 
and we'll talk about this more uh, with rounders, um, where he doesn't, no pun intended, doesn't overplay his hand a lot of the time uh, in terms of the visuals. But I <laughs> still think they're they're stunning uh, throughout. Um, they have a really great, again, neo-noir look to them. Um, but yeah, I, w- I would say Red Rock West is probably, out of the ones we're going to talk about, maybe the one that fully captures what he's trying to go for in the neo-noir genre. You banged it up pretty good. How'd you do that? I was in the Marine Corps. No shit. First Force Recon. Last unit to leave Vietnam, April 71. I got the same one right here. (laughs) Where were you stationed? I was with the 24th Mound, Lebanon. The truck bomb thing, you were there? Yeah. Holy shit, you weren't in that building they hit, were you? Oh, damn. You're one lucky son of a bitch. I know. And I know I'm lucky. 241 guys weren't. Thanks for the ride. Anytime, soldier. Onward to the last seduction. So what is the last seduction about, Thomas? The Last Seduction is about a woman played by um, Linda Fiorentino. Here's the here's the weird here's the weird thing going into these movies. I always get Lara Flynn Boyle and Linda Fiorentino. And they're in the same. I, I understand. <laughs> I understand. Yeah. Uh, honestly, probably because of my childhood spent watching the two Men in Black my movies. movies back they're back both on in repeat. it. <laughs> yeah. Yep. They're both in it. Yeah, it's Linda Fiorentino. She's married to Bill Pullman, who's a doctor in new york and she and bill pullman have they're both kind of hustlers and in the yeah. opening of the film uh, bill pullman sells off a bunch of prescription drugs yeah um, f- for a lot of money to pay off his debts but she decides after he kind of slaps her we're not sure if there's a, a history of abuse or not he, he kind of plays it off like that's the only time he's ever hit her yeah but um she decides she's going to take the money and leave him and goes to middle of nowhere new york somewhere between the city and buffalo and kind of starts a new life in this little town while she's trying to decide how to how to get even and get away from from bill pullman which is where which is where she meets peter berg who's a small town guy with big dreams yes and uh, they begin an affair where we're not really sure if she's falling for him or or using him Um, yeah until the until the film goes on and, and yeah. we begin to see her kind of machinations. Yeah, here's what was interesting about this movie watching it this time, specifically after rewatching Body Heat earlier in the month, mm-hmm. is that this play we always talked about in Body Heat how like it's all from William Hurt's perspective. We're never seeing Kathleen Turner like um spinning her web and creating the pl- like plotting basically. And this is the opposite. We're pretty yeah. much with Linda Fiorentino the entire time watching her plot everything and we're just seeing how Peter Berg's character reacts to it. It's like, say when Peter Berg comes knocking on the front door, mm-hmm. we're not looking at it from his perspective of him, of, of him coming into the door, him coming in to see her. We're seeing how she's reacting when she's walking to the door and how she's going to play this. Like that's the entire thing is that we're always mm-hmm. seeing her first to know how she's going to set this thing in motion. Yeah, yeah. A, a lot of the reviews I read of this one, because I, I went on on Rotten Tomatoes and was kind of clicking around to see how it was received, um, which was very well. But yeah. uh, a lot of the reviews I was reading mention 
Body Heat. And yeah. I, I, I've got to wonder if, if the, the writer of this didn't watch Body Heat and kind of go like, oh, what would it be like if we were following Kathleen Turner for this yeah. whole movie? Because that's that's essentially what this what this plays as. You you yeah. are the, the femme fatale becomes the main character and you get to watch her uh, plotting as it happens. And that's why that's why I think this is probably his more his most subversive film because of that going against the traditional noir uh, storylines and giving you a, a whole new perspective. Like there are movies that did that. And we talked about that uh, in November. Uh, Hunter and I talked about with the movie called too late for tears. There were, there were movies that somewhat did that, but this really leans heavily into, we're just following the femme fatale the entire time in terms of body heat compared to that. They definitely probably watched that for the sex scenes in this movie because they go like <laughs> the sex scenes, in this movie yeah, uh, I had read. I had read that they the initial. I think that they believed the initial uh, uh, pitch for this movie was it was going to be like a Cinemax movie, like a late night softcore. That's what uh, it felt like. Pornography sure. on Cinemax. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, I, you you brought up the score for Red Rock West and um, Kill Me Again. I want to bring it up here because I was the score is very different in this movie. Like, I think it was done by one mm. of Lynch's composers. So it has this very, like, odd, in some cases, comedic bent to it throughout the movie. And Dahl has said that he, he always saw me as a black comedy. What mm-hmm. would, would you call this a black comedy? Yeah, I could definitely see that. I, I do think this one, of all the ones, you know, I kept saying I was kind of looking for the, the scandal in his movies. And this one does feel the most kind of tongue-in-cheek. Um, because you are... You know, it's that it's that thing, and a lot of movies have done this, where if if we as an audience tend to like the the protagonists we're given, the you know the main character, whoever whoever's eyes we're seeing the movie through, we tend to sympathize with them. And so this movie is kind of like, oh, we're gonna we're gonna challenge you on this one, like, um, yeah, you know, we're we're you're following her, and you, this is her story, but but we're gonna push her to the limits of like what you can accept from human behavior. Pretty much, um, yeah. And so it's it's very twisted. It, it yeah. plays off as kind of twisted and, and very humorous in, in watching her kind of play these two men uh, and just kind of constantly have them wrapped around her fingers. How do you feel about her as her performance or with her performance? Uh, I thought it was good. Yeah, I thought she kind of embodied it. It, de- it felt like she was an update of that. Those those 40s femme fatale. She's you know, she's Linda Fiorentino has like a very uh you know, not a deep voice, but she's, she's got that kind of husky quality that, um, that is what Kathleen Turner was kind of picked for with body heat too. But it all, you know, goes back to these, these characters from the 1950s. Um, but, but then she, you know, she's very Lauren Bacall type. Yeah. 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 She sounds like Lauren Bacall, but she looks like she's straight out of New York York in the nineties. I thought it was a very good update of, of that kind of femme fatale archetype yeah but her cost her, her wardrobe is very like black and white throughout the entire movie it's she's pretty much wearing mm-hmm. black and white the entire time um and there is an interesting um comparison or or, or comment too of like of a uh, femme fatales wearing white white basically that that prop i mean that was in body heat with kathleen turner mm-hmm. um it's very prominent in this movie and you know, she's wearing black black and white the entire t- a lot of the times um but yeah it's like you're with this movie you're seeing like her essentially latch her hooks into this like naive country boy country boy basically and peter berg i don't think is 
Peter Berg doesn't have a huge range in terms of acting, I will say. Uh, <laughs> but I think Peter Peter Berg plays plays this character really well. Like I hate I don't want to mm. say I don't want to say I don't like saying that on a podcast, but I think he plays his character. Got a lot of respect for where I Peter do. Berg Peter, took his career. You know, I really I mean I, I like Peter Berg, but I just want to come in terms of acting. I think he was smart to get into directing. Um, mm-hmm. But I think he does a good job playing this kind of like ah shucks type guy that, like you said, the 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 guy the the guy in the small city with big city dreams, um, and and his turn because I don't want we don't like getting the spoilers in these episodes about the ending. But I think his turn in the end and the and his the way he carries himself in the ending, which is very dark and twisted, like everything comes to a head. And I think that's he has a he has great moments in that final kind of sequence. Mm-hmm. Um, with Pullman and Fiorentino, uh, and Pullman too. I really like in this movie. Pullman, that with Pullman and Fiorentino, I think they both lean in to like the dialogue of this movie. Mm-hmm. Like they they ha- very much have uh, like the 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 rhythm of like the noir style of dialogue. Yeah, um, Bill Pullman's having a blast in this. movie. Yeah, he is. Like he's having a really good time. <laughs> He is. No, he is. Like that's, and he's not in there much. That's the thing. He's he's very much a third tier kind of player in this movie, but he's really having fun in this like wrong husband role. And mm-hmm. then when you get into the ending of it again, when they kind of meet back up, is that why I think he he plays so well is that he knows all of her tricks. Is the thing. He's yeah. aware of what she's gonna do. And Peter Berg's kind of just like slowly starting to find out, oh God, like what have I got myself into? Um, but yeah, I think, again, I think the cast in this movie is great. I think he has, and we'll get back to this in, with the rounders later, but I think Dahl, no matter what we say about the films, he has a good eye for casting. Mm-hmm. Um, he gets a lot of great actors in these roles. But yeah, I think, I, I really like Last Seduction. I think it's a little problematic when watching it now with some of the stuff that we don't go into because it's kind of towards the end. Mm-hmm. But I, I think it's I think it's a really, I think she's great at it. Friend needs advice. I'll set it up for you. Husband and wife do a one-time drug deal. The goal's a wholesome one. College fund for the kids. <laughs> no. The wife wants new digs. Comes off without a hitch. Only the wife decides that the new house would be happier without the husband. Sharing was never her specialty. She's anxious to start spending. Well... <sighs> It's just an opinion since you're not paying for it. But the husband is entitled to half of whatever you buy with that cash. In fact, as soon as you turn it into a legal asset like a condo or a house or a bank account, he can make a claim on it. What are you saying? My lips moving too fast for you? Not fast enough, as I recall. So what? Hold on to it for how long? Well, as long as it takes to uh, finalize a divorce. How long does that take? Uh, he'll fight it maybe two years, less if you're lucky. I'm sorry the law doesn't make it more convenient for you to steal and deal drugs, Bridget. (laughs) Okay, start the divorce. Well, that's going to cost you. It's a lot of paperwork. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fill in the blanks for me. I'm out of town. Where are you? (sighs) Maybury. I'm going to Chicago to see an old friend. Oh, that is the first place Clay would expect you to go. Stay put. (laughs) You can't be serious. Look, maybe he won't stall. Can he afford a good lawyer? Mm, Not anymore. (laughs) How silly of me to ask. Bye. More about what happened when this got released. 
because since these are lesser known, I kind of want to give you a little backstory on these. So you think after two botched releases of Dahl's first two films, that wouldn't happen again. But guess what? It, <laughs> it did. Uh, the film premiered in February 1944 at the Berlin Film Festival in Germany, right around the time uh, Red Rock West was starting to pick up steam in the U.S. I think Red Rock West came out in 1994 in the U.S., the same year as Last Duction did. Um, after its premiere in Berlin, the film was sold to HBO again in the United States, but it opened in London where it received some of the best reviews of the year. Again, critics like Roger Ebert began pushing the film until it finally re received a theatrical release in the United States, but it was shown in theaters after it had been shown on HBO and on home video. After so much press, uh, praise for Linda Fiorentino's performance, October Films and ITC, the production company for the film, sued the Academy of Motion Pictures and Arts and Sciences in hopes of preventing them from sending out their Academy elig eligibility list for the Oscars without the last seduction on it. Because many people were pushing the, Os the Academy to overturn it, or many people were pushing the Oscars to overturn it so that Fiorentino could be nominated for an Oscar, but a judge sided with the Academy because <laughs> La Last Seduction was shown on cable before U.S. theatrical release. Even with that kind of roadblock, Fiorentino still received a BAFTA nomination in the U.K. for Best uh, Actress in Leading Role, and she won the New York Film Critics Circle Award and the Independent Spirit Award for Best Actress in a Film. That would uh, that would not be the last time that Linda Fiorentino was involved in a in a court case. That's you're correct. Um, uh, the film would also be placed on several cr critics' best of lists for 1994, including being named the fifth best film of the year by Roger Ebert. Yeah, he gave it a perfect like four stars, right? Four out of four. Yeah, he commented how she really. Uh, most people in it, but Dahl and her really late, like really bought into the noir like style. Yeah. And that's what, that's what I do. I, I do really like about this one is it's, it, this one does feel like the first time he's, he's like playing with the, yeah. the genre. Um, whereas, whereas the other two felt like, uh, more stylistic updates. This is the first one to be like, okay, it's, it's 1990. What was it? Eight? 1998? Uh, no, no. 1994. Four. It's nineteen ninety four. Like I can take a noir film and tell it from the film fatale's point of view. Yeah. Um and yeah, it does it, it it feels very fresh from that yeah. From that way. Yeah, it's the same year as Pulp Fiction. That's the but if it, it, <laughs> It's all about distribution. Yeah. Um but it definitely has a little bit like in it I think the visual style is great, but it definitely has this like late night cable vibe to it yeah yeah it's it feels a little small just yeah. like budget wise like most of it is is in bill pullman's apartment and inside her house and inside the one bar and and you know there's like a handful of locations which which can make a movie feel limited um i think sometimes. It was, i think it was 2.5 million was the budget hmm. um which pretty low, and, that's, and that's always a bad thing. I watched yeah, yeah. One Night in Miami last week and loved it. It's entirely set in one hotel room. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, in something like this, it can you know, especially up against something like Pulp Fiction, it can make yeah. it feel a little bit like a like a like a cable production. Yeah. Oh, I had read that. Um. So basically, that they had people, the people who were at the company before when they when the movie started getting made, liked the movie but gave a lot of notes. Well, they had a changeover in the uh uh leadership 
and the people who came in hated the movie. And mm. they were like, well, we're going to lose more money if we don't finish it. So let's just let them finish it and not say anything. So <laughs> everyone kind of said, yeah, they kind of had free reign a lot of the time. The only thing they had to cut, they had to cut some of the sex scenes. There was apparently a lot more like sex fantasy scenes they put in there. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, we should. Someone, I think they said that they were shooting a scene of a sex fantasy as like her as a cheerleader or something weird. And, <laughs> and some executive saw it and he goes, what is this? An art film? And <laughs> like, and apparently stopped shooting for half a day, made all like the main people come in and goes, uh, you need to tell me right now, do you have any artistic motives with this film? Cause they were just <laughs> wanting to make money. They didn't want to make an art film. <laughs> I, I I don't know that I would call it. I, I, I would there's call a it certain art type. Film. There's a certain type of film that it toes the line for, and an art film is not. Art film is uh, not that. Uh, like, yeah. like you said, this 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 can feel like a like a Skinamax uh, release, and in, in some of it. Why, why don't you just stay over? You gotta get back. Well, then I could come over. That's mm. fine. My place, my space, Mike. Don't get sticky. What are you so scared of, huh? What are you so scared of? I don't know. I guess it's because I've been hurt before. I just, I don't want to get close to anyone right now. You're different than the others, Mike. I feel like, I don't know, maybe I could love you. I just, I don't want that to happen. Really. Will that do? <sighs> fucking doesn't have to be anything more than fucking. I am, I'm not asking for love, all right? Wise man. We could talk. You could talk to me. I'd like to talk. So talk. Who's listening? But yeah, I still, I, st I still like this movie. I, like you said, I think it's very subversive. It's the first one where I think it's subversive in the noir archetypes. And I think this is the with this coming out in '94 and Red Rock West coming out in '94 in the U.S. I think that's where he kind of got a little bit of like attention in Hollywood. And this is what I noticed with him is that every time he he gets attention and gets that kind of one break, something kind of happens. So the next film he makes is called Unforgettable. I wasn't able to watch this beforehand because uh, it's not really available that many places. Um, after the critical success of these past three films, Dolphin got his chance at a larger film, and he decided to make a movie called Unforgettable, a sci-fi thriller about a man who is obsessed with finding out who murdered his wife. Still some kind of noir, a noir plot, it feels like, but a sci-fi movie. It's like memory and stuff. Um, stars I didn't kill my wife. <laughs> I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. Uh, but it stars Ray Liotta and Linda Fiorentino as well. Uh, the budget of the film was $18 million, the highest of Dahl's career up to this point. And the film would only gross $3 million at the box office. And it received a negative reaction from critics as well. Oh no! What did Roger Ebert say? This was his. This was his golden boy. He gave I think one out of four stars. No, he, he, he must he, have been heartbroken. He, he, did, he did not like it. Yeah, he was very heartbroken. Because oh, Ebert, like Ebert, four like three and a half out of four for he Red was Rock championing. West. He, yeah, very much oh, so. And so it was kind of like, and he was probably, oh damn. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like it's, I mean, it's not like we him were all rooting for you. What's that? Uh, that that uh, <laughs> next top Banks. model, <laughs> Tyra Banks. We're rooting for you. <laughs> anyway, so it doesn't do well, but that's in 1996. But in 98, he gets a little bit of redemption with Rounders. 
Can you tell me what Rounders is about, Thomas? Yeah, Rounders is about a a law student played by Matt Damon, who is a nighttime moonlighting as a as a poker player in the New York underground poker scene. Yeah, and um, he his best friend from high school, who is also a a poker player, but more of a hustler, card shark type of character named mm-hmm. Worm, mm-hmm. played by um, uh, played by Ed Norton, is released from prison and kind of bringing Worm back into the gambling scene. And vouching for him leads to Matt Damon's life kind of falling apart. And he has to, the two of them get into debt and they have to make a lot of money in a very short amount of time. So they go on this kind of whirlwind poker tour of the New York underground trying to make all their money back. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a movie, like it's, it's a gambling movie, but also a sports movie. Cause it, Mm -hmm. it, like the structure is very much like a sports film of like, he lose, like the first time you see him, he loses to, uh teddy kgb played by john malkovich in a very uh uh interesting accent um but uh loses loses all of his money um and then like by the end it's kind of like him coming back to replay teddy kgb uh to go against his foe one more time type thing this is doll's probably most i mean it is his most recognizable film and Mm. probably his most hollywood movie this is his most hollywood film by far I mean, you got 1998 Matt Damon in this movie. Yeah, like, yeah, Matt Damon coming off of Goodwill Hunting, right, right after Goodwill Hunting. Um, Edward Norton releases American History X the same year as this film. Like, uh, 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 Famke Jensen is like coming off of Goldeneye, right at this point. Mm-hmm. Like, Malkovich is also doing a bunch of stuff. I is being John Malkovich like right around this time? So that's 99. That's the next year. Yeah. um so like, but like and you got these, john turturro coming off john of turturro, a bunch of cohen cohen movies um S- martin landau coming off of oscar win from edward coming off of being years. martin landau well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like yeah like you like like it is a uh a pretty amazing cast of characters and actors mm-hmm. in this movie um and i think i think the visual style i i also think his visual style in this movie is probably the best of any of his films. Yeah, I'd agree 100%. This it, fe- movie... it feels... Well, and also, you know, locations, everything. I'm not... I'm, yeah. I'm sure you've got budget differences, but it, it this feels more like a like a movie I should be seeing in theaters, whereas, like I said, mm-hmm. the, the other stuff all kind of felt like cable releases. Now, we'll say the cable releases stuff. I, they haven't really gotten good uh, distribution on Blu-ray or DVD either, so that's why it kind of looked like, like cable stuff um but yeah this one feels big and bold and colorful um and and i think one reason why i think it's aged i think aged very well visually is because it doesn't like all these other cheap not cheap but kind of bland miramax films the late 90s like it has a very it has a very keen eye for shot selection uh color palette all that um I think also too, because I, I heard in the commentary for this movie, they talked about how I think Miramax, I think the Weinstein's want him to make this a lot more a lot more flashy. Like they mm-hmm. wanted like like uh, fast shots going over the poker table, real fast close ups of the of the cards being dealt, and dolls like when they're at the poker table, we're not moving the camera. Because he said they were they were like trying to make it like color of money. So it's trying to be mm-hmm. Scorsese with the way he's like following crews around the uh, the pool table. He's like, no, when they sit down, 
the camera's going to sit with them. And when you watch that movie, that's kind of what he sticks with a lot of the time. Like the camera mm-hmm. doesn't move that much, but it allows some great scenes between all the, all the players. Yeah. Um, and it's one too, like when they go to Atlantic city, when it's like Ed Norton, Damon, and all the like kind of John Turturro, all the poker guys are at the Atlantic city table. I was mm-hmm. like, I want to see a TV show of these people. <laughs> like like their banter and the, they're, they're just so great in the as a cast together like i would love to see that as a tv show was uh, that the scene when bill camp shows up or bill camp no bill camp shows up in the in the run where he's going like mm. all these games and like all these all these nights or whatever and bill camps at the, at the cigar bar when they're talking about oh, yeah, cigars when they're doing all the cigars yeah. com- oh and, and, yeah, and damage damage just sitting sequence. there it is. So it's a very fun scene. And like you see Norton kind of react in the background to everything. Yeah. Um, it's great. Well, I mean, and then we, you and I both also clocked a, and, and Bill Camp has no lines in this movie and maybe gets one shot. And um, I think, they I do the same. Yeah, he has one. I think it's one line. It's very, it's oh, very okay. brief. Yeah. yeah. But they, they, they do the same for Christmasina. We see Christmasina very briefly in like this Ivy League trust yeah. fund kid game that they play earlier on. Yeah. And then ne- they never come back. I'm like, oh, so I, I said, again, with the casting, he has a really good job of putting people that would become bigger in these literally one well, all line the, roles all the people in his in in matt damon's kind of inner circle like in that atlantic city scene are all solid character actors they are. you go back yeah. and look uh, i don't i don't think the the matt damon's girlfriend is that good though gretchen mall no I, yeah I'm that's the weakest gretchen mall fan. <laughs> that's the weakest of the movie like it's kind of like it, even when watching it now it's like ah this character just and i, I think it's just also not that's the the weakest part of the script is her character yeah i mean it's that it's that old tired like you have to choose between me and 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 what you're good at yeah. like, which is weird it's it, the 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 priorities of this film are, are a little bit weird like, i'm not sure what the lesson is meant to be like your gambling addiction is okay if you're if you're good at it most of the time uh, <laughs> well yeah but, I, think... uh, but I, I really like i really like john Turturro in this he's i mean i, I literally john Turturro is good in everything but he's he's kind of the the voice of reason uh in this Movie. yeah the, the scene that him and damon have at the like uh wherever the like the club they're at or whatever when he's just like oh you never took a chance or whatever oh the bathhouse uh, the, the bathhouse bath the turkish bathhouse i need whatever money you can give me see that's the thing this time there is no money i give you two grand what's that buy you a day Nah, i give it to you i'm wasting it that's fucking great you did it to yourself you had to put it all on the line for some vegas pipe dream I took a risk. I took a risk. You, you see all the angles. You never have the fucking stones to play one. Stones? You little punk. I'm not playing for the thrill of fucking victory here. I will rent, alimony, child support. I play for money. My kids eat. I got stones enough not to chase cards, actions, or fucking pipe dreams of winning the World Series on ESPN. You want me to call some people? Try and buy you some time, I will place to stay or the truck no problem but about the money i gotta do this i gotta say no what are your thoughts on malkovich in this movie though i i thought it was gonna be more ridiculous i'd always heard he was like oh, ridiculous really? in this movie and I, I thought it was gonna be more um i love the little thing with the oreos i don't know who came up with that to be his like <laughs> business and he's just like 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 click <laughs> these yeah. oreos at the table um no i thought he was it seems like he was having a blast i read this like 
trivia fact. I don't know if it's real that like Malkovich came in and like on the first take dropped that accent and yeah. everyone clapped for him and he like leaned up to Matt Damon and was like that sucked and listen they <laughs> they're all loving it. <laughs> yeah. No, it was great. Yeah, I I thought it was a lot of fun. I really liked his yeah. I liked his character. He was a good time. But yeah, it's it's a little it's a little ridiculous, but that's what <laughs> I was looking for. I was looking for a little bit more ridiculousness. Yeah, I think I said Rounders is the slickest movie. Again though, I think they they pulled it after like 3 weeks. Like it really? was not in in theaters long. Um it was it was very divisive with critics. It made I think 22 million dollars or something like that at the box office, which is like not much for Damon coming mm-hmm. off Oscar wins and Norton being one of the, like the hottest like actors, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Um, and Norton Norton is playing uh, one of his more ham doing. And I don't say this is a bad thing. It's Norton being like Nor- Norton to like eleven, if that makes sense <laughs> in this movie. Yeah, yeah. Like he's, I think he's playing it great, but like the neurotic, like kind of these little ticks and things that he does, and kind of mealy mouth character that Norton can sometimes play can pl- will play, but it's like full tilt in this movie. Like he's going, he's going for it. I do really love. I think the best scene in the movie is the the sequence at the at the um, police bar. Um, yeah where Norton keeps trying to set Damon up to cheat and like Damon is like refusing. Yeah. And then they, they, they catch Norton kind of in the act and, and Damon gets looped into it, even though he didn't want to. Um, that's really good. And it, it's, it's, it's shot. Well, it's edited. Yeah. Well, it's played well. It's, it's a very, and it comes at the end of this, like really fun. Like we were talking about the really fun sequence where they're just like going to all these different places and you're seeing all these colorful characters. And mm-hmm. then it gets to this one and it's just like, Oh yeah, this is still really serious. Yeah. 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 Now here's my next question. Do you consider this a neo-noir film? Yeah, I think it's got some, I think it's definitely got vibes. Um, yeah. You know, in the way it's all of this stuff, it's, it's all kind of underground and you're in these basements with, you know, smoke in the air. Um, it, it feels almost as if, and be it, stylistically the, the, these kind of poker clubs are so, are presented to us so differently than, you know, the law school and, 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 yeah. um, matt damon's meetings with his professor yeah it is almost like he has this kind of secret double life which is very noirish like that you're seeing the seedy underbelly of the city um so yeah it's it's definitely got vibes you know <laughs> it's um i would i don't know that i would call it a complete neo-noir but it, it, it's definitely doll bringing in some of his noirish tendencies yes i think let me read because uh ebert ebert's line was pretty good about it where he said uh about noir let's see because he said it in his review Rounder sometimes has a noir look, but it never has a noir feel because it's not about losers, or at least it doesn't admit it is. Damon Mm -hmm. plays a loser a little bit in the movie, but you never lose confidence in Damon, if that makes sense. As Mike, he's 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 like even even in the final like matchup against KGB, like he's been beat up by the cops, but he still looks like a movie star. So again, I think that's that Hollywood. I wonder. If, I wonder if this movie's made, say this movie's made four years before by Dahl in the early 90s. What does this look like? Like that Red Rock West era movies. Mm-hmm. Like, how does this feel? Is this as slick as this movie? No, or is, yeah. no, absolutely not. Yeah. But yeah, I, so yeah, it got pulled. But yeah, Rounders has developed a big following over time. I think because it like kind of hit that right before Texas Hold'em Poker got big, like mainstream big. Mm, yeah 
and it's it's one that I think because I think that's why I watched a lot on cable. So it's, it's it still plays a lot on cable even today. You know what cheers me up when I'm feeling shitty? What? Rolled up aces over kings. That right? Yeah. Check raising stupid Taurus and taking huge pots off him. Yeah. Stacks and towers of checks I can't even see over. Playing all night, high limit, hold him at the Taj, where the sand turns to gold. Fuck it, let's go. Don't tease me. Let's play some fucking cards. So his next movie after Rounders is Joyride, which is the one that I think I'd heard. You said you watched earlier. I'd heard of, but I always kind of saw it as just like the the heart, like the just a horror film that played in the movies and got a little bit of money. I didn't see it. I didn't see it as like a artistic piece if that makes sense um mm-hmm. but the joy rides about uh lewis thomas who is played by paul walker uh who is a freshman embarking on a cross-country trip during a summer break to pick up his childhood crush uh along the ride is lewis's bro- lewis's brother fuller played by steve zahn uh is a practical joker who uses the car's old cb radio to play a prank on a trucker known by the name uh rusty nail um the victim of Fuller's gag or Rusty Nail ends up being a psychotic murderer who pursues uh, the group of kind of early t- or teens or early 20 year olds uh, to get revenge on them for what they did to him. Uh, <laughs> Joyride's a fun movie. I, this is one I came to late. I, I watched because I found out John Dahl did it. Also, movie that has a very noir look to it um, and plays into these kind of B movie tropes. And, and and the reason why is because it was written it was written by co-written by J.J. Abrams and Clay Tarver, and with Joyride I wanted to ask this question because I noticed that for a guy who didn't make that many movies, he wrote he wrote his first two movies or co-wrote them, and then his next like five or six I can't remember how many it is I think it's uh, six um, films are all written by other people, mm-hmm. but three of his films have pretty talented people that wrote the scripts but but they're like young like i said uh rounders was in by brian koppelman and uh david levine and they both ended up doing billions they co they co-wrote oceans 13 together uh they did the girlfriend experience for steven soderbergh the movie and a couple other things and then joyride it's jj abrams after felicity right when alias is coming out before lost and then mm-hmm. Clay Tarver, who ended up being the co-showrunner and executive producer on Silicon Valley in the le- later seasons of um, of the of the show on HBO, and then his last film, You Kill Me, is written by Christopher Marcus and Steve McFeely, who would later do all these Marvel films like Infinity War, Endgame, Captain America. And so I wonder, and and from what I hear from Brian Kaufman and David Levine is they liked working with John Dahl. And most writers I've heard say they did. And I don't, I don't know if there's really a question, but I just find it interesting that he, like, he gravitated towards younger writers on their way up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it feels almost like, which is, I don't know, maybe that's another thing. I keep coming back to, like, these ex- expectations I put on him, but it, it feels like he's almost, uh, you know, on this, like, trauma level of, like, he, he works with all these actors who are coming up and, and he works with these writers who are coming up and he feels like these B movie producers and directors that we've talked about in the past. 
yeah. that have launched all these careers. Um, mm-hmm. But the stuff that he's making isn't isn't except for Joyride isn't really that ridiculous or over That's the true. top or you know the that um it's it's not even really trying to be except for joyride yeah unforgettable seems like just from from reading about it it seems like it might be it might try yeah because i I think ebert gave it a bad review because it was too outlandish is what he was saying yeah yeah Yeah, he he seems like one of those very successful b-movie directors but he's not trying to make b-movies it's like he's trying to make a movies moving on to that that kind of transitions into this next movie uh called the great raid the biggest film in Dahl's career in terms of budget, um, it was a war film about the rescuing of Allied soldiers at a Japanese POW camp by the Americans of the Filipino resist- guerrilla resistance. Uh, the budget was $80 million. Wow. The film only made $10 million. Oh, no. Yeah. As I've said, every time he kind of like gets that big chance, something kind of happens. Uh, but again, as usual... The film's failure could come because of its release. Shot in 2002, the film was pulled from the release schedule several times, eventually being shelved through the inner turmoil within the Miramax films between the Weinsteins and the Walt Disney Corporation. Uh, mm-hmm. Once the Weinsteins left Miramax, the film was released in 2005 to very little marketing, and the film would receive mixed to negative reviews. But Roger Ebert shows up again. <laughs> And yeah. pra- and praises the film. I think three out of four stars. And he says, "Here is a war movie that understands how wars are actually fought." Well, look at this. Look at this cast. I know it's like it's Franco, Benjamin Bratt. I think Sam Worthington pops up in it at one point. Sam Worthington pops up in it. A uh, the you know I I was reading a, a a news article today. Clayne Crawford is is apparently staking his comeback right now. But <laughs> um, Clayne Crawford was in it. Joseph Fiennes. Look at look at little Logan Marshall Green. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> big big Logan Marshall Green fan. If I I'm sure I've you said are. it on yeah, this you podcast are, yeah. before. Um so yeah, it just it, it kind of just it misses the mark again. Mainly be I, I I don't know if it would have been a hit if it had a better release, but I I would blame some of this on the release the way it was released. Yeah. Uh so yeah, it just—it's just bad luck after bad luck with him. We've 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 heard, at, you know, in the, in the years that that stories have come out about Harvey Weinstein, we've we've heard of far too many films that he 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 was someone who was able to make a film, but he was also someone who could break a film if he wanted to. And I wonder about that with Great Raid, and I also kind of wonder about it with Rounders because they, I think, I mean, Miramax released it and they pulled it so early. Yeah. And and the marketing of the, the trailer for that movie sucks. Like yeah. I mean that's entirely possible. We he, there are many examples on the record of him. He had no problem tanking a movie that he had just put money yeah. into for personal reasons, for yeah. a personal vendetta. And like Rounders, it's like the trailer's just like, meet Mike McDermott. He's a poker player. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> it's just so bad. He's a law student by day, poker player by night. Until one and I'm day, sure the, his the old music friend, to, you know, '98, <laughs> like that, that like guitar yeah. was just like, no, 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 rounders, so, rounders. Until one day, his old friend comes into his life and ruins it. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> and I was just like, no wonder no one went to see that movie. Like, yeah, that that definitely sounds like there was some Harvey Weinstein shenanigans. Yeah um but yeah after the great raid and all that kind of fiasco 
his next movie and his final film as of right now was a movie called You Kill Me. And I watched this last night. I actually really enjoy this movie. So Ben Kingsley, again, it's a great cast. Ben Kingsley plays Frank, professional hitman in Buffalo, New York. Bring him back Buffalo, who has a massive alcohol problem. After he fails to complete a hit because he passed out from drinking all night, his boss slash uncle tells him he must clean up his act or he is gone. So Frank is sent to San Francisco to get his life together with help uh, from uh, from one of the family's acquaintances, played by Bill Pullman. Uh, he lands a job at a funeral home, begins attending Alcoholics Anonymous, Anonymous gains friends, falls in love, but while this is happening, some trouble is staring. Ba- some trouble is happening back in Buffalo. Uh, this is a fun movie. Again, kind of a black comedy, but somewhat charming in a weird way. Mm-hmm. Um, Kingsley, I think, is really great in it. Also has Luke Wilson in it. Uh, Tia Leone again keeps like uh, Philip Baker Hall, Dennis uh, Farina. A really great cast. I think the look of it's interesting. I don't think it's that great. It's in that weird period of like mid 2000s, late 2000s films that like it looks like digital, but shot on film. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Like there's that weird period where no one really knows what to do with these kind of low budget films. So they kind of have this yeah. weird kind of bland look to them. And this one kind of does, uh, even though it doll does add some color to like the, the mix a lot of the times. Um, but it's a solid film and Kingsley, I think is, is, is pretty great at it and is worth watching specifically for how he, again, kind of adds a little bit of a layer to the hitman character that has mm-hmm. now become a bigger thing with things like Barry. Um, uh, or that, you know what? I always forget that like there were two whole nine yards movies made, you I know? know, right? Whole nine yards, <laughs> whole 10 yards. Those used to be on TBS like every weekend. Yeah. Um, but this was around that time, right? Around around it was around the time of the second one, whole ten yards for sure. Because I feel like that was where I feel like I, I, that both those were video store movies as well for me. My dad liked those movies because because uh, Matthew Perry was a dentist in those movies. <laughs> Your dad's a dentist. There's not many dental movies out there. My my dad had to watch all of them. It's like Novocaine with Steve Martin. He didn't like that one. <laughs> he also he also didn't like Little Shop of Horrors with Steve. Steve, Steve Martin, Martin has really set dentists back. <laughs> <laughs> that'll be the opening teaser of the episode there tom <laughs> <laughs> um man um so where is john doll now that's an interesting question his last movie was you kill me released in 2007 but john doll is still consistently working just not in the film world <laughs> yeah i'd say the answer is john doll is making a lot more money than he was ever making in feature films <laughs> directing tv shows and and the book i read john doll says he always kind of viewed himself as a director for hire because he believed like a true auteur uh he said he believed that most auteurs like were more directors than writers they like he, he liked taking someone else's script and interpreting it in a certain way but also kind of staying true to the script brian kaufman and david levine i think both said like when rounders happened that he said, hey, I'm going to shoot this as is. And then the, the writer for Last Seduction, this is a funny story, Last Seduction, Doll calls him up and says, hey, I need you to cut five pages. And he's like, oh my God, how am I going to cut five pages? And he goes and he like cuts all these scenes out, sends it back to Doll, and Doll's like, what are you doing? You cut all these great scenes. He's like, well, you told me to cut five pages. I don't know how to cut five pages. He goes, 
mess with the margins. <laughs> he, so it's like he was very he, he's very true to the script. So it would make sense that he would transition to television. And he has directed over a hundred episodes of television since 2007, pretty much. That's led him to he's directed such popular television shows as episodes of Breaking Bad, Californication, Ray Donovan, Walking Dead, Dexter, True Blood, Justified, Yellowstone, and Billions, which is again created by Brian Kaufman and David Levine. It's funny that um, it's funny that that he did some Yellowstone. I saw that on his resume. I was gonna say he does kind of remind me in his earlier work of like a, a 90s taylor sheridan a little bit a little bit yeah he, he has this very like like not just noir but these western style movies like a mm. character comes in the town either to save it or wreck havoc kind of type thing mm. even with linda florentino and last seduction so yeah it's interesting to see that he and he's he just did a he did a, 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 a couple ep- or episode or a couple episodes of like for all mankind on Apple plus. He just did one for servant that M night Shyamalan show there. Mm-hmm. I think he did an episode of Jessica Jones. Uh, so he's done in various genres. Like he's done a lot of big stuff. So yeah, I said maybe his sensibilities of wanting to direct others, people's work. It fits better with TV. Guys, we're going to everybody. We're going to have a real quick, industry corner um (laughs) any of you who want to go into the industry there is so much money in television and you might not know this you might know this you might not know this if you direct a pilot you get money for every episode of tv of that show for the entirety of its run so i remember uh we had a professor uh, you know who it is uh the director tv and he had like a class, like a like a like a, a big kind of like sh- thing at his house for the final class. And I showed up and I texted Thomas to go, I and I never really wanted to direct TV at this point when I was in film school. And I texted Thomas, I think I want to direct TV now. Yeah, like, yeah. huge well, house. He, specifically, he had two huge she pilots should, he did yes, for yeah. series that went on to be gigantic. Hits. So it, yeah, get those pilots, John Dahl. We're rooting for you, man. Get you a pilot, dude. <laughs> so yeah, he's probably making good money. But I still, I said, I still like him as a as a film director. I'd be interested to see if he would do something nowadays. But when you're making that much money doing TV, man, not worth it. Um, so we'll move on to stats because I don't have any unrealized projects with stats. Uh, most popular film, uh, Rounders. Correct. <laughs> Forty two thousand uh, watches on our Letterbox list. Least popular film, uh, Unforgettable. You're correct. Unforgettable hey. is least popular. At one thousand two hundred, that is that is the wrath of Roger Ebert. Don't ever cross Roger Ebert. I'll <laughs> we'll give you one out of four stars. Uh, highest rated films, top three. Uh, Rounders, that's number three. Uh, last uh, Last Seduction, number two. Red Rock West, number one. Hey, okay. I was expecting Last Seduction to be one and Red Rock West two. Well, technically, but Letterbox does love Nick Cage. They do. Well, technically. Red Rock West and Last Seduction are tied with 3.5 each. Okay. Uh, Rounders is a 3.4. Uh, lowest rated films, bottom three. Unforgettable. Yep. A great raid. Yep. And Kill Me Again. No. You Kill Me. You Kill Me. Okay. Uh, Unforgettable has a 2.7. Great Raid has a 2.9. You Kill Me has a 3.0. I think Kill Me Again has a 3.1. So close. Okay. And these are all out of five. People don't know. Uh, most appearances. 
Bill Pullman? Bill Pullman. Linda Fiorentino? No, Bill Pullman is number one. Okay, he's got more than two? He's got, well, so I'm, I'm, I'm throwing in one thing here. Uh, John Dahl did a TV series, or did a TV show episode in 19, in the midnight, 95, I believe is what it was. Uh, it was a series series called Fallen Angels, which was an oh entry, yeah that neo noir like Showtime mm-hmm. anthology series where they bring in like a director to do an episode. So John Dahl did one in season two, and Bill Pullman's the star of it. So I'm gonna count, oh, okay. so I'm gonna count three. that. Yeah, uh, yeah. For those that know, I, I, it's not available anywhere. Mm-hmm. I, I found it at Cinephile Video. Another shout to Cinephile Video because um, they have uh, some copies of it somehow of season one and two i think season one at least i don't know about season two of that series fallen angels for those who don't know it's like a very early 90s uh neo-noir series where like a director would take a famous author's one of their short stories and adapt it into like an hour-long tv episode basically Mm -hmm. uh soderbergh did two alfonso caron did one uh, Emile Lebesky shot a couple of those. Um, Tom Hanks directed one. Uh, stars like Gary Oldman, John C. Riley, Bill Pullman, uh, Alan Rickman, Laura Dern. So a bunch of people were in this in this series. And it's kind of unheard of and kind of surprising because I had people that were big that came afterwards. Also, only official credit of a Tom Cruise a Tom Cruise directing credit. He directed an episode of the show uh that i think had mm. john c Riley in it is what it was wow all right final questions this will be interesting is john Dahl an auteur yeah for better or for worse i mean here's the thing and and this is you know this is one of those really interesting things with especially with directors who aren't writer directors you know having watched a lot of john Dahl movies i can i can guarantee you that in pretty much any of them except for rounders there's going to be a scene where a woman is holding a case of money and 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 she's got a gun and the male character doesn't know if she's going to shoot him or not. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's in a John Dahl movie the it's not a question of if a woman's going to break bad, but like is she going to break back good afterwards or what? Um, uh, which is a little problematic, but you know that's yeah, the yeah. noir genre. We've been dealing with that uh for two months now. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, I think I think he's definitely got a, a set style, and um, he's got themes that kind of run throughout, even even into Rounders, which is not as neo noir as his other stuff. But yeah, um, yeah I'd, I'd say he's an auteur, and that's yeah. I, I'd be interested now to go visually. I, I don't think he's he's super distinctive necessarily, but mm-hmm. but from a like a storyteller, if you, you think of an author an auteur as an author, which is mm-hmm. what you're meant to do, yeah, I think you can you can definitely point out kind of similarities in his characters and his storylines and his themes. And I think he keeps the visual subtle to where it doesn't uh, hinder the story in some way. Yeah. Because he could tell these stories in a much more flashy way, as we've kind of discussed, but he chooses to let the story be the main focus. Um, Mm -hmm. Which I think also, too, maybe why he hasn't developed as much of a following uh over time is because it's it's in the in the moment story i think will be more important than the, than the visuals of it but sometimes in order to like to have that kind of cult classic stories mm-hmm. can become outdated but stop but visual style can, there can be always something to it that people latch on to if that makes sense right. um 
and that's what kind of ha- what's happened, I think, with him. But yeah, an auteur we kind of use as a blanket statement, and I think the big thing is sometimes like, is there a voice here? And I think in the directing style, there definitely is a voice um, from John Dahl. Uh, you kind of answered it, but what are his running themes? Lady with a bag of money. Yeah, a, a bag of money. Uh, yeah. Greed. Uh, kind of changing loyalties, like never really being able to read a person mm-hmm. um, and, and using everyone is, is kind of using each other yeah. throughout. Um, femme, femme fatales. Fair, uh, yeah. He, he can't trust uh, the femme fatale uh, mm-hmm. for better or for worse in these films. Yeah. Um, and yeah, kind of like that, that whole idea, like I, I said greed, but like, just like money will make people do anything. Um, mm-hmm. Is, is, throughout it's it's the motivator for the protagonists it's the motivator for the antagonists in all these movies um yeah. and it'll you know even even you were talking about in, in red rock west we're presented michael as this very honest person but you know even money wouldn't make him lie to say that he's there for the job yeah um, it's it's kind of the constant motivator in all of these including rounders yeah and that's kind of an a easy noir trope to do. And I think as we talked about too, like he does play with these either, pl- not I don't always play, but he either subverts or he showcases these old noir archetypes with the hitman or the PI or the gambler or the femme fatale or the bar owner. Like they're all present in this John Dahl world. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes again, subverted, sometimes not. And that kind of goes with how does Dahl fit into this genre? Uh, I mean, I think he's, I'd be interested. It's one of those things that's kind of hard to remove yourself now and, and see the 90s as it was. But yeah. um, but I do think he, he, it feels like he was the bridge between taking the erotic thriller, which was, like we said, was kind of launched by Neo Noirs and kind of bringing it back to noir kind of reining it in they had gotten a little out of hand by the 90s and it feels like he kind of reined it back in to make it hey this this is about being a neo-noir yeah again like it's i mean it's it's still not it's not always motivated by sex which is what erotic thrillers are about but also we should be motivated by money and sex gets involved and makes it messy that's kind Mm -hmm. of what happened especially with last seduction i think that's it on john Dahl. Any other comments? Thank you for doing this, by the way, Thomas. Yeah, this yeah, was, was this, interesting. This is one of my picks of just like, let's just see what happens. Yeah, let's give it a go. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, they, they can't can't always be 100%. Uh, I was about to say they can't always be five stars, but Roger Ebert would disagree with me. So yeah. last deduction. But, well, uh, he only did four stars, so so technically you're not wrong. Yeah, but, but perfect, perfect, <laughs> perfect scores. Perfect, yeah, yeah, yeah. Brandon, I got a question for you before we wrap this up. Yeah, since yeah. we're wrapping up Neo Noir, what's oh, a what's a recommendation you have for everybody Neo Noir wise that um, that we haven't? Oh man, we haven't touched on. Let me get my list up because I have a list. Um, oh, here's one I will say that I find that I've that I think is a lesser known one that I've always that I've enjoyed and I think is really good. A movie called One False Move. Okay. Directed by Carl Franklin, uh, star written by Billy Bob Thornton, stars Billy Bob Thornton and Bill Paxton. Bill Paxton plays this Arkansas like police officer, um, and his old girlfriend is on the run with Billy Bob Thornton, and they've robbed a bank, I believe, and they're about to come back through town in Arkansas, 
and the FBI contacts Bill Paxton to help to help them catch them. And they're kind of playing on this like he's this kind of country bumpkin or it's LAPD detectives. They're coming from LAPD to Arkansas, I believe. And the LAPD mm. has like tracked them down and they've asked Bill Paxton to help. And it's this great just Bill Paxton. I think it was one of his like breakout roles as a star. And I think he's phenomenal in that movie. That's one of kind of dealing with like bag of money, criminals on the run and all that stuff. I think it's it's really good. Nice. And that guy, Carl Franklin, also the devil in a blue dress, Denzel Washington, which I also yeah, would say. Yeah, I love that one. What about you? You got one? Um, I think mine would have to be, and this is this is happening right now, but um, the, the former TBS series, now HBO Max series, Search Party, is... Um, Interesting. Okay. Is incredible. I, I speak it. I, I speak its praises to anyone I can. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's it's deeply steeped in not just like neo noir, but it, it it kind of opens. It's it's a show that I love because it changes itself every season, mm-hmm. and it doesn't have to like, but it keeps challenging itself. But yet, yeah, it starts as this kind of like hipster parody of a neo noir. It's a, a, about a four hipsters in New York who decide they're going to go find this friend of theirs from college who they don't even really like that much but they just like are bored and want something to do and and kind of turns into just these like ridiculous hipsters comedic hipster characters put into an actual like noir story and um in the season since it's it's kind of warped itself and been become different things and i i know that they um they reference hitchcock a lot and like the the style of it and the and the fashion and everything but um such a fun watch and the the fourth season is is actually like airing right now on on hbo max i love how you asked me that question just so you can plug search party that's what i find no i was just (laughs) i was just thinking about the other day i was i was watching the new season i was like this is this show is a Mm neo-noir and um and yeah sometimes in that you know we we used to do these episodes where we had these huge letterbox lists and we'd like run through them we'd be like oh that one's good that one's good yeah and i I was thinking i was like we don't really hit on that anymore of like the ones that we don't talk about i feel like we could still endorse a couple more projects yeah i like it yeah we should we should add that at like like this the very end of it of like hey here's some stuff to watch because i was thinking that too because we still make those letterbox lists as kind of like a jumping off point for us um and i still try to watch like movies of the genre that we don't discuss just to kind of like be more in the genre so we can like actually discuss this more in depth sometimes mm-hmm. um so yeah yeah I, I i i've seen season one of search party so i, I need to get back onto it uh i didn't know it was over on hbo max now yeah now it's an hbo max original that, um, it'll, it'll, pro- it'll probably play better there than tbs yeah. it'll probably oh, yeah. play better um but yeah but for next month thomas we're going we're, we're finally getting off the noir train for a little bit light lighten it up a little <laughs> bit yeah because i mean honestly i was i was thinking about the other day i was like we did a lot of neo-noirs for christmas our december month yeah. too so it's been a lot a lot of Liter- crime a lot of yeah. bags of money a lot of people getting shot yeah we we will still have bags of money but not as many people yeah. getting shot in this yeah. uh in this next next month. one hook was the only one that was not like a crime movie. yeah um, so yeah, for February, we're kind of returning to the genre for the first time. Uh, and one of our early, like, as we were talking about just now, these like bigger episodes of like covering one genre and episode, which we did back, I think in 2019, pretty much, um, we're co- we're, we're going to be covering screwball comedies, um, for the month of February. And so these are kind of these, an offshoot of the romantic comedy, but we'll go in depth with that next month. So yeah, stay tuned for that. We're going to be talking about uh, What's Up, Doc, as kind of a 60s version of it. 
or the 70s version, sorry, 70s version of it, but also some of the old, the older traditional uh, screwball comedies. Uh, and we'll also cover the director, Preston, writer director Preston Sturgis, who has been a major influence on several filmmakers today. So that's going to be a fun month. So be prepared. Start watching your screwball comedies. And that is it for Neo Noir. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast and our podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And please give us a review. Tell us what you're thinking of the show. Give us a rating. We really appreciate that. As well, make sure you like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thomas, as always, thank you so much for coming on. Absolutely. Y'all be careful out there if you find a bag of money. Just just turn it into the police. Well, <laughs> maybe don't even turn it into the police. Sheriff might be crooked. Just leave it. Don't touch it. Go about your day. Anyway, guys, thank you so much for listening. Hope you listen to more episodes soon. Bye.